Well, on this final Advent Sunday, we go to the last chapter in the Bible, Revelation chapter 22. So if you have your copy of God's Word, I'll invite you to to take that and open up with me to Revelation chapter 22, where we're going to look at verses 12 to 17. We don't have time to look at the whole chapter, which would be great. So we're just going to look at verses 12 to 17 this morning, Revelation chapter 22. 12 to 17, and as you're turning there, I'll invite you to follow along with me as we read from God's Word. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, beginning in verse 12. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life, and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about the things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The Spirit and the bride say, Come, And let the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Brothers and sisters, this is the Word of our God given to us for our good. Let's pray together and ask God to bless the reading and the preaching of His Word. Let's pray. Father, we do thank You that You are a God who speaks as we have gathered together on this Lord's Day. The last Sunday of Advent we reflect upon the fact that Your grace is abundantly clear even in the fact that we have Your Word. You are not silent. You are a God who speaks. You are a God who has spoken once and with finality in the person of Your Son. And so we pray, Father, that by Your Spirit now, You would open our hearts and minds to understand savingly the things of God revealed in Your Word. We pray for grace, Father, to understand these few verses from Revelation 22. I ask, Father, for mercy from You, that I would say things that are true and in accords with the Scriptures. We pray, Father, for discernment together that we would be a church like the Bereans, that we would test everything by the Word of God. And so hold fast to the Scriptures until the end. Lord, manifest Yourself among us today, we pray now through the preaching of Your Word. In Jesus' name, Amen. Friends, Advent is a time for treasuring Jesus Christ. If you find yourself asking the question, why does the church do this every year, sing the same carols and read the same passages, then this is your answer. Advent is for treasuring Jesus Christ, as our brother Josh reminded us in his prayer. That's not to say that the rest of the year we focus on other things. There is no other thing. There is no one else to treasure. Jesus Christ is the sum of Christianity. And to treasure Him is the heartbeat of everything that we do as a church. And Advent, in a particular way, is set aside as a way of amplifying this purpose. To treasure the unthinkable thought that God would become man for us and for our salvation. And so, the church always experiences Advent from two perspectives. 
from the first perspective, we are the church in celebration. We celebrate that God has fulfilled His promises in the birth of Jesus Christ. This is why we sing Christmas carols like Joy to the World, because we rejoice that all of God's promises find their yes and amen in Christ Jesus. We're the church in celebration. But there's a second perspective, and it's the one we've been focused on this year at Advent. We are the church in celebration, but we are also the church in waiting. The church in waiting. We anticipate the return of Christ when all of God's promises will be consummated and the new creation will come in all of its fullness. This is why we also sing Christmas carols like, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And if I'm not mistaken, this is our 10th Advent, if I'm not mistaken, we always sing O Come, O Come, Emmanuel on the first and last Sunday of Advent because we are the church in waiting. We long for the Messiah to come again, to return. And friends, it's that second perspective that draws our attention this morning. As we conclude our Advent season, I'd like us to do so from the perspective of the church in waiting. Here's why. Waiting is hard. Waiting is hard. And I don't mean simply that it tries your patience. That's true, but that's not precisely what I mean. Waiting is hard because it wears down your resolve. Waiting works against the very thing it asks you to do. It pushes us to the limit of our ability to bear up, to endure, to persevere. And so, as the church in waiting, we're always facing this question. Where do we find the strength of faith to continue doing the thing we need to do? Which is wait faithfully for Christ to return. Where do we find the strength of faith? What encouragement is there for the church in waiting? And our text this morning in Revelation 22 answers just that question. It's fitting that on the final Sunday of Advent we come to the final chapter of the Bible because here in these few verses we see encouragement for the church in waiting. Encouragement. Specifically, John's closing vision gives us these three realities that sustain the church in waiting for her Lord. Three encouragements that bear us up and renew our resolve until that day we see the Lord Jesus face to face. So, if you've come to church this morning a bit weary with the cost of discipleship, if you've come to church this morning lacking Christmas cheer, if you've come to church wondering whether or not you will make it to tomorrow in the faith, then God's Word has good news for you, friends. Good news here in Revelation 22. So let's consider these encouragements together and let's remember how the Lord gives us what we need to remain faithful to Him. The first encouragement in Revelation 22 comes in verses 12 and 13 and it's really the one that sustains all the other ones. Here we see the confidence of Christ's return. That's encouragement number one, the confidence of Christ's return. These verses here in chapter 22 are part of the epilogue to the book. The epilogue begins in verse 6 and it runs all the way to the end of the chapter. And there's this one main theme running through the entire section. Jesus is coming back. That's not a conjecture, by the way. That's a fact. 
John presents it here as a fact. Jesus is returning. In fact, it's not even John who is pressing this truth home to us. It's the Lord Jesus Himself. Notice the Lord's words, verse 12. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. Friends, the first thing that should jump out to you from that verse is the word soon. I'm coming soon, Jesus says. The Lord repeats this word three times in the epilogue. Verse 7, I'm coming soon. Verse 12, I'm coming soon. Verse 20, I'm coming soon. So here at the end of the Bible, this is what the Lord Himself wants the church to hear. The blessed good news that He is coming again soon. And so the church is always praying, Amen, come Lord Jesus. Even so, there's three features, there's some features of Christ's soon return that we ought to understand a little better. This is where we find the encouragement. So let's just pause here for a moment and dig into verse 12 and notice a few things about Christ's return. First of all, we should note that Christ's return is near. Again, notice that word soon. What does Jesus mean by soon? Is He speaking in mere units of time? The equivalent of, I'll be right back? That's how some people take Jesus' words. And that's also why some people point to these verses as proof that the early church misunderstood the, re the return of Christ. People will point to Revelation 22 and say, see, the church was wrong. They were misguided. They thought Jesus was going to return like the next day, and that was 2,000 years ago. So is that what Jesus means by soon? Is He speaking in mere units of time? Well, not exactly. The sense here has to do with suddenness rather than mere time. Jesus is coming back suddenly or quickly or unexpectedly. Remember how Jesus Himself described His return in the Gospels. He's coming at a time you will not expect, Matthew 24. No one knows the hour, not even the Son, only the Father, Mark 13. And that's the sense here in verse 12. It's the idea of suddenness. So sudden that if you're not prepared, it'll catch you off guard. And in that sense, friends, the return of Christ is near. In fact, it's always near in that sense. Follow the logic. If Christ's return is sudden, then it's always near for you never know when it's going to happen. It could be today. It could be tonight. It could be next week. Or next century. We don't know the time, and that's precisely why it's always soon. It's always near. In redemptive history, think of it this way. In redemptive history, there's one thing left to happen. The return of the Lord Jesus. It's soon, in other words. It's near. And that should encourage us to remain faithful. Our Lord returns soon. Along with that nearness, we should also remember that Christ's return is necessary. It's necessary. Look at the second part of verse 12. Jesus says, I'm bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. Friends, that's a reference to the final judgment that we considered last week. The word recompense means to recognize the moral quality of an action, either with a reward or with punishment. So when Jesus returns... Those who have trusted in the gospel will be rewarded with eternal life. They will receive the fullness of their inheritance in Christ Jesus. But the wicked, those who have rejected the gospel, will receive the just punishment for their sins. Christ returns to judge the living and the dead. 
But friends, the point I'm trying to make here is that this, this judgment, this recompense must occur. As we saw last week, the final judgment is part of Jesus' saving work. And therefore, the return of Christ is necessary. It's a necessary piece of Jesus' faithful ministry. He must come back. Not because he's obligated by something outside of himself. Don't misunderstand me. Rather, Jesus must come back because he's compelled by his own perfect faithfulness to do just that. To come back and gather his church. If he fails to come back, then he's less than faithful. And if he's less than faithful, then he's less than the Son of God and banish that blasphemous thought. He must return. Think of that powerful moment in John's Gospel, chapter 14. Jesus is teaching His disciples and almost just out of nowhere, in the middle of teaching His disciples, He looks at them and He says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come and get you. You remember that? I will not leave you as orphans. I will come for you. So if He doesn't come back, then He's less than who He is. But praise God, He can't be less than who He is. His return is necessary. It's necessary because of His own faithfulness. And because of that necessity, friends, we can have confidence that Christ's return is certain. It's near, it's necessary, it's certain. In fact, Jesus Himself emphasizes this certainty in verse 13. Notice how the Lord identifies Himself. Verse 13, I am the Alpha and the Omega. The first and the last. The beginning and the end. Friends, that's the name that God uses for Himself in Revelation chapter 1. And now Jesus claims this as His own name. Why can He do this? Because Christ shares fully in the nature and glory of God. All that is true of God is true of Christ. For Christ is God in the flesh. The Father and the Son equal together in glory. And that, friends, is the certainty of Jesus' return. How do you know Listen to me. How do you know that Christ will keep His Word and come back? Because He is the Lord of history. He is the Alpha and the Omega. The determiner of the beginning from the end. He has the right as God to decree what will be. Indeed, Christ Himself is the beginning and the end of all things, and therefore there is no doubt when Jesus says, I am coming soon, He is more than capable of keeping that promise because He is the Alpha and the Omega. And ultimately, brothers and sisters, that's our encouragement from these opening verses. Christ's return is near, it's necessary, it's certain, there's no doubt, and therefore we can have confidence about that fact. Confidence. And that confidence produces in us the faithfulness we need to wait for His return. You may have heard someone use the phrase before that as Christians we ought to live in light of the end. We've said that phrase from this pulpit. We should live in light of the end. We should live in light of the last day. And that's what I'm getting at here. When you keep the return of Christ in view, faithfulness takes root in your heart and it grows this is where we often get, get the things out of whack. Faithfulness to the Lord is not a work that we do. It is a fruit of the Spirit's work through the Word in our hearts. 
So if you want to be faithful, you've got to keep the truth of the word, particularly the truth of Christ's return, firmly in view. It's like the fertilizer for faith to grow. So if I wake up each day and I think to myself, Jesus is returning soon, help me to live in light of that, God. What do I do that day? Well, I take holiness a lot more seriously. I let the things of the world pass perhaps a bit more quickly. I aim to love God and love my neighbor as myself. I'm more inclined to pursue the things of the Lord. I'm on the road of faithfulness, in other words. How did I get on that road? Because the sure and certain return of Christ produces in His people the kind of faithfulness that holds them firm to the end. That's the first encouragement from this text. It's the confidence of Christ's return that produces in our souls the faithfulness that we need. The second encouragement builds right on top of this. From verses 14 and 15, we see the promise of Christ's blessing. That's encouragement number two. The promise of Christ's blessing. There are seven beatitudes in the book of Revelation. Seven statements of blessing to the people of God. Verse 14 is the seventh and final beatitude. And it's a nearly unimaginable promise for those who belong to the Lord. Notice again what the text says. Verse 14. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Now right from the start, you should note that this blessing is addressed to Christ's people. It's addressed to the saints. All through Revelation, the saints are clothed in white robes, signifying their position before God as being acceptable and pure. So, verse 14 is addressed to all believers, to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this blessing, friends, is staggering. John uses two images to describe this blessing. The first is that believers have the right to the tree of life. If you look back earlier in the chapter to verse 2, you'll see that the tree of life stands in the middle of the city of God. When God's people are brought into the heavenly city, they will be able to eat from the tree of life and they will live. It's an image of salvation, you see? Think of what happened to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden after Adam's sin. God drove them out of the garden so that they would not eat from the tree of life. Genesis chapter 3, verse 22. That was the devastation of sin. It cut humanity off from life, which is found only in the presence of God. But now, through the victory of Jesus Christ, God's people are brought in from the wilderness. They're brought in to the city to eat from the tree. Instead of being exiled away from God, God's people are brought in to enjoy life. It's the blessing of salvation. And it's pictured in Revelation 22 as God's people eating from the tree of life. The second image picks up on the same theme of salvation. Notice in verse 14 that the saints enter the city by the gates. Now what city is John talking about? Well, it's the city of God. The new Jerusalem that comes down out of heaven. If you look back to chapter 21, there's two cities in Revelation, by the way. There's Babylon, which represents the city of this world. 
And then there's the heavenly city, the city of God, the new Jerusalem. If you look back to chapter 21, you'll see that the climax of Revelation is actually not the overthrow of Babylon, the wicked city of the world. No, the climax of Revelation is the descent of the new Jerusalem, the city of God. Babylon is overthrown in order to make way for a new city, for the heavenly city to come. And as that new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven, we hear in Revelation 21 the absolute climax of of redemption. Listen again to what chapter 21 says about this city. I've already read it once today, but I'm going to read it again because, well, it's good news. Chapter 21, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be His people and God Himself will be with them as their God. Brothers and sisters, that's the climax of salvation. We get to be with God. Dwelling forever in His presence. Again, this takes us back to the Garden of Eden, doesn't it? The searing pain of Adam's sin was exile from God's presence. This is something we don't emphasize enough. Eden was paradise because God was there. Walking with Adam and with Eve as a man walks with his friend. And so the great loss of Adam's sin is that they lost the presence of God. Because of sin, God drove Adam and Eve from the garden as a picture of the separation that sin creates between humanity and God. But now, through the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, that separation has been overcome. Sin has been dealt with. And the exile of God's people is over. Through Christ, God's people are brought into the presence of God once more. They're brought into the heavenly city. Understand, friends, this is the goal of salvation. All of redemption leads to this point. Why are your sins forgiven? So that you can dwell forever with God. Why are we justified by faith in Christ so that we can come into God's presence without the fear of condemnation? Why are we sanctified in holiness so that we can share in the purity of dwelling with God? You see, every aspect of salvation, every link in that blessed chain of redemption is driving us to this point. Verse 14 in Revelation 22, we go into the city by the gates. We don't sneak into the city like thieves. We enter the city like sons and daughters of God. That's the great blessing that is promised to every Christian. It's that we will dwell with God forever. To say it another way, perhaps a better way, certainly a stronger way, the greatest blessing in the Gospel is that we get God forever. If your sins are forgiven but you don't get God, you don't have anything. Your sins are forgiven so that you can be with God. We enter the city by the gates. And we get God forever. That's the blessing of verse 14. Now, there's one more aspect to this blessing that I want us to think about, but before we do, we need to acknowledge that there's another side to salvation's blessing. As incredible as verse 14 is, verse 15 is just as sobering. Notice the warning, verse 15. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. 
friends, just some basic Bible interpretation here. If the city pictures the presence of God, then what does outside of the city picture? The judgment of God. The judgment of God. Outside the city is the place of darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Those who reject the gospel remain outside of the city. I want you to note that. To be saved is to come inside the city. To be judged is to remain where you already are. Outside of God's presence. Cut off from His life-giving glory. Where you receive the just judgment for sin. The list in verse 15, sexually immoral sorcerers, murderers, idolaters, that list in verse 15 reads a lot like Paul's list in Galatians chapter 5 about the works of the flesh, doesn't it? That's the point. These are the things that define those who belong to the world. It's the last phrase, though, that should get our attention. The last phrase in verse 15 is a very clear description of unbelievers. They are those who do what? Love and practice falsehood. Friends, the order of that phrase is significant. Do you see it? They love falsehood and therefore they practice it. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks and the hands act. You see, that's one of the great tragedies of sin. We tend to think that the great tragedy of sin is that it causes us to do things that we ought not to do. And that's true. But the greater tragedy of sin is that it causes us to love things that we ought not to love. Things that don't lead to life. The loving of darkness leads to the practicing of darkness. That's who we are by nature. We love sin. And therefore we do sinful things. So think about verse 15. Think about verse 15. Those who are outside the city are there because they want to be. Those who are outside the city are there because they prefer darkness to God. They love falsehood. This is one reason why God's eternal judgment is just. Because in leaving unbelievers outside the city, God is giving them both what they deserve and tragically what they prefer. Darkness. So that raises the big question. I hope you're already asking it. It's the question that ties together the nearly unimaginable blessing of verse 14 and the terrifying warning of verse 15. The big question is this. What's the difference between those two groups of people? Those who enter the city and those who remain outside, what's the difference? Why, say it another way. Why do some people go in and others continue to love the darkness? What's the difference between the two? Well, some people will tell you that the difference is that those who enter the city simply made the better choice to do so. They saw all the facts, they weighed all the evidence, and they decided to go in. They just made the better choice. But that can't be right. That can't be right, because if that were the case, then those inside the city would be able to boast in themselves. That they were wiser, more spiritual, uh, more insightful than those outside. But remember, this is God's city. Which means that the only person who gets to be praised in this city is God. 
Not redeemed rebels, only God. So it can't be that those inside the city simply made the better choice than those outside the city. That can't be the answer. No, the difference, friends, is, is found right there in the text. The Bible tells you in the first line of verse 14, who receives the blessing of the tree of life in entering the city? Answer, those who have their robes washed. Washed in what, you ask? Washed in the Lamb's blood. Revelation 7, verse 13, they washed their robes in the Lamb's blood and made them white. We used to sing that song when I was a kid growing up in the little country church that I went to that doesn't exist anymore. And the refrain was that question, are you washed in the blood, the soul-cleansing blood of the Lamb? Are your garments spotless? Are they white as snow? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? That's the difference. It's the difference of grace, friends. The difference between those inside the city and those outside the city is the difference of grace. By God's grace, believers are cleansed in the blood of Christ. They're made clean and pure and forgiven. And then clothed in robes of Christ's blood-bought righteousness, they receive citizenship in the city of God. We receive the right to eat from the tree of life. Not because we deserve eternal life. Not because we're worthy. Not because we've simply made the better choice. Friends, those explanations are anti-gospel. No, those enter the city, those who enter the city do so because of their union with Christ, which is rooted in grace and purchased by blood and enacted through faith. And that enables God's people to receive the blessing of salvation. What's the difference? Grace. And that shouldn't make you proud, it should make you humble. Here's the connection that I want us to see this morning. The promise of verse 14, the promise of this blessing is what sustains faithfulness in the Christian life. I went through all of that, what's the difference, in order to be able to just make this summary statement. We are not a self-made people. We are a blood-bought people. And therefore, therefore, God will not fail to finish the work that He has begun through the blood of His Son. That's how faithfulness is produced. With that promise that God will finish what He starts. The Father will not leave one of His children outside of the city because the Father will not allow His Son's blood to be shed in vain. Understand, friends, God loves His glory more than anything in this universe. And the place that God's glory is seen most clearly is in the blood of His Son. And therefore, God will not let His Son's people fall. Because He is committed to giving His Son the fullness of the glory that He purchased at the cross. By His grace, God the Father, through the Spirit, will keep all of those who belong to the Son. How does He do that, you ask? That sounds like a great promise. I, I like the sound of that, but how does it happen? How does God keep those who belong to Jesus? Friends, God keeps them through the power of this very same promise. To say it another way, God keeps a Christian the same way that He first calls a Christian through the Gospel. He keeps them through the Gospel. This is the power of the Gospel at work in the life of a believer. The Gospel of Christ 
not only creates faith through the work of the Spirit, the Gospel also sustains the faith that it creates. This is the great tragedy of just thinking of the Gospel as the front door to Christianity only. Yes, I believed that. I prayed the prayer. I went down the aisle. I did the baptism thing. And now I move on to other stuff. No! That's not Christianity. Christianity is the Gospel, period. The whole total of it is the work of Christ. Look, this is why we make it our aim every Lord's Day to remember the Gospel together. This is foundational to our church's view of the Christian life. It is through the Gospel, explained in the preaching of God's Word, celebrated in the singing of God's people, and remembered in the ordinances of God's church. It's through the Gospel that God is keeping you for the final day. This is why we care that you're here To worship. We don't keep track of attendance. We don't care that you're here simply so that we can puff up numbers. Friends, we care that you're here because this is where grace works. Through the ministry of God's Word in the life of His church. If I could open up the head and heart of every member of our church and pour in one thing, it would be this. That this, the gathering of the people together where God's word is explained, God's gospel is celebrated, and it's remembered in his ordinance. This is the place where God's grace is in action through his spirit. If I could pour one thing into your hearts and minds that you would never forget, it would be that. It's through the gospel that God is keeping us for the final day. So here again, this blessed good news, brothers and sisters. We are bound for the heavenly city. We will enter by the gates. We're not sneaking in like thieves. We're walking in like the sons and daughters of God. And that citizenship is blood-bought. There's a great day coming. That's the promise that Christ makes in Revelation 22. And through the power of that very promise, God is working to hold us fast for the last day. That's the second encouragement that we see in this passage, the promise of Christ's blessing. The final encouragement comes in verses 16 and 17 where we see the call of Christ's Gospel. That's encouragement number three, the call of Christ's Gospel. In verse 16, Jesus once again declares His identity to the church and He does so as a means of confirming His Word. Notice verse 16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and descendant of David, the bright and morning star. Friends, that's a declaration of kingship. Jesus is the Messiah. He's the greater son of David. The king who would arise to defeat the enemies of God. Those titles stretch back to the Old Testament. And Jesus uses them here to confirm His word to His church. Don't miss the connection between the two Uh, clauses there in verse 16. I've sent my word to you and my word is true because I'm the king. That's what Jesus is saying here. History belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ and He's moving it according to His will. Now, we've already seen that connection in our Advent series. We talked about it the very first week. There's a new element, though, that's introduced in verse 17. And this is what I want us to see. Since Christ's word is true, what should we do as the church as we wait for Him? Verse 17, the Spirit and the Bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come, 
Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. You'll notice there are three calls in verse 17. There's four calls, but three times you hear the invitation, come. Friends, I take all three of those invitations together to be communicating the same thing. It's summarizing the mission of the church. In other words, verse 17 is not the church's prayer for Christ to return. That comes later in verse 20. Rather, verse 17 is a summary of our mission. What do we do as we await the return of Christ? We proclaim the gospel. We say to sinners, come. Come and hear and believe and receive the good news. We call sinners to repentance. We declare that there is living water for any and all who are spiritually thirsty. And then as the bride of Christ, we compel and we call the sinners to come. We go out to the highways and the byways and we say, come in. Come in and believe and receive and live. It's the church's mission. So that's my interpretation of verse 17. And with that interpretation in view, I want to remind you of just two brief points about this mission of the church. I just want to real briefly remind you of two, two aspects about the mission. First of all, notice that the church does not undertake this mission alone. Look at the first line. The Spirit and the Bride say, come. Perhaps it would be better to translate it, the Spirit-empowered Bride says, come. That's a remarkable picture there. That phrase is communicating the Holy Spirit empowering the church, the bride of Christ, to proclaim the gospel. It's actually a very moving picture. Why is it the spirit and the bride and not the spirit and the body? Because bride communicates a sense of affection, and that's the church's mission. We're called to go out to the spiritually thirsty of the world and we're empowered by the Holy Spirit to say, we know the one who will quench your thirst. And we know him because he first loved us when we were thirsty. Come and meet him. Come and know him. Come and believe. That's our calling. And it's undertaken through the power of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit empowers us for gospel mission. The second thing we should note about the church's mission is that grace, grace is the one note that we keep singing. If you think about proclaiming the gospel as a song that the church sings, grace is the melody that moves the song along. Grace. Look at the last line of verse 17. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Friends, that's an echo of Isaiah 55. If you haven't read Isaiah 55 lately, I would encourage you to read it today. Isaiah 55, God calls His people to come and feast in His presence. And He says, come and feast at My table even though you don't have any money to buy what you need. Come and eat from My table. Why would you spend your money on things that doesn't satisfy you? Why would you, spend your things on, why would you spend your money on that which is not bread? And drink that does not satisfy. That's Isaiah 55. It's God calling people to come in and to eat and drink and feast on His grace. And that's the church's emphasis, brothers and sisters. As we witness to Christ, what's the note that we keep singing in our song? What's the melody that infuses all of our worship? It's the grace of God in the Gospel. It's the unmerited, undeserved, unfathomable grace of God in Christ. That's the heartbeat of our proclamation. 
And we want to preach the gospel so freely that the one thing that stands out to people is that I can't earn this salvation. There's nothing I can do to buy this salvation. In fact, we want to preach the gospel so freely that people know the only qualification is that you know you're thirsty. That's the only qualification, is that you know you're a sinner who cannot save yourself. But the good news is that God prepares a table for His enemies. And He says, come in. I know you don't have any money. Come in. Eat. Drink. Feast on the grace of God. So before people know our church for anything else, I pray that they would know us as people who proclaim and celebrate and magnify the grace of God in Christ. We can sort out all the other heads of doctrine later, which we want to do. But we want the front door to be, come in. Come in and eat and drink and feast, even though you don't have any money. And so really, that's the final takeaway for Advent. Every week I've tried to give us just one application point. Week one was courage. Week two was worship. Week three was hold fast to the Scriptures The final week to take away is this. Make disciples. Make disciples. I hope you see that there's nothing earth shattering in any of those points. There's nothing earth shattering about being faithful to the Lord. Courage, worship, hold to God's word. Make disciples. Particularly disciples who love and rejoice in the grace of God. When we give ourselves to that gospel mission, we can trust that we have been faithful to our Lord. He has been faithful to us to save us from our sins. He will be faithful to us when He returns to gather His church to the heavenly city. And therefore, as we wait, we are called to be faithful to Him. How? Proclaiming His gospel, making disciples, trusting that God will not fail to save all of His redeemed from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Courage, worship, hold to the Scriptures, make disciples. Christ has come brothers and sisters, and praise God, He's coming again soon. That's the good news of Advent. And so our prayer is that God would make us faithful to do what the church has been doing now for 2,000 years as we await our Lord's return. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we are beyond grateful to You. We're stunned even today as we reflect upon these few verses. The freshness, Father, of seeing that You open the city's gates and you, You call us in without money and without price. And indeed, You've paid the price in the blood of Your own Son. And so we ask, God, that You would keep us faithful to Him. We pray that the confidence of His return would produce in us the faithfulness that we need. We pray that the promise of His blessing, Lord, would keep us in the faith. And Father, we do pray that we would be faithful to the mission of His Gospel we ask God very boldly that you would save sinners and bring them in to the life and ministry of Midtown Baptist Church. We pray this, Father, for the glory of Christ. And in his name we pray. Amen.